What's the big deal about Easter? This morning, I don't know if you read the news, but over in Sri Lanka, there was a terrorist attack in churches. I don't know how many churches it was, but a couple, I think three churches, I think it's over 200 some people died. You know, when you go to a funeral and you stand at the casket, that's when it matters. When you think about eternity, when you wonder what the, what's going to happen next, what's the hope beyond this life? There were some believers this morning and those churches worshiping and they were singing about their risen Lord and then they met him. That's pretty amazing to think about. Why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? Why should you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The disciples had that, that same question. Is it true? Did he really rise again? How can we know for certain? And there was a point after Jesus' death, the disciples were questioning, how do we know for certain that he is alive? And what was it that convinced them that Jesus rose again? And you might think, oh, because he appeared to them. What's interesting, the Bible actually presents something else. Before he convinced them with his appearance, he convinced them with the word of God. With the word of God. And today what I want to, what I want to do is I want you to see the prophecy of his resurrection and how the word of God was fulfilled in Jesus Christ when he rose again. And you might be in here today and you might not be a believer. You might say, I I don't know if I believe all this. And what I want you to do is open your heart to God this morning and say, you know what? I could be wrong. This could be true. God's word could be true. I'm going to see what God can say to me, what God will say to me today. Maybe you're a believer in here. And if you are, I want to strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. God doesn't just want you to know this is true. He wants you to give your entire life to it. So let's start with a word of prayer. Father, I pray this morning that your power from on high, from the Holy Spirit, be upon this place. And the power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead will resurrect dead sinful hearts. And will have the new life that Jesus Christ promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 24, we read of the glorious historical account of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. And we're not going to read through this here in Luke 24, the whole chapter. But in the first couple of verses there, you see six ladies go to the tomb early Sunday morning. They arrive, they find the tomb empty, then they're shocked because the guards are gone. But there are two angels who appear before them. Look at verse 6 and listen to what the angels say. Verse 6, the angel said, He is not here, but has risen. Listen to this. Remember his words. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. What convinced these ladies this moment? What was it that he, they were trying to convince the, or I should say, what were the angels using to convince these men or these women of the resurrection? 
It was the words of Jesus Christ. You could say it, the words of God. The words of God. And then Peter and John hear this from the ladies, and they come running to the tomb. They find it empty as well. They all go back, and the men are up there in the upper room, and they're all confused. So if he's risen, where is he? Which brings us to Luke 24, starting in verse 13. And here we're going to see two of his disciples, not the 12, not the 11 remaining, but two of his disciples that followed him on the road to Emmaus. Now, before we go into this passage, one of the names in this passage is Cleopas, one of the disciples. And I think probably the name was written here because the people to whom Luke was writing, at least some of them knew this guy. This was only, the gospel of Luke was written only 30 years after Jesus Christ's resurrection. So you, you put a name somewhere in here because people will go, oh, I know this guy. So here's an eyewitness account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, Luke 24. That very day, the day that Jesus Christ rose again, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself, Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus, drew near and went with them. Now, imagine that. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So these guys are walking out of Jerusalem like literally thousands of people are doing at this time. There were around two to three million people in Jerusalem at this time during Passover. Regularly, there was only probably about 500,000 people that lived in Jerusalem. But for this special festival, I mean, thousands of people would come in. So you can imagine as it's ending here, some of them are exiting to go home, some to other places they're living. And Jesus meets some of the disciples who are leaving as well. And notice they don't recognize him. Why do you think that was? Well, number one, he looks human because he is. So he is God. He's eternal, never had a beginning, never going to have an ending. But he came in the incarnation, took on human flesh, then died and was resurrected. And he actually got a new human body. Do you realize Jesus is in heaven right now in a human body? So when they looked at him, he just looked like a man. But also, the second reason is in verse 16, God divinely prevented them from recognizing him. Verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is the conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said, what things? And Jesus is kind of setting this up so he can preach the greatest Easter message has ever been preached but not recorded for us because it actually doesn't go through his whole message. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. 
but they didn't see anything. And so the death of Jesus for these disciples here brought sadness. It brought despair. Even in light of the news that maybe he is alive, they didn't believe it. And so here Jesus walks up as a regular guy, they think, and asks them, hey guys, what's going on? What are you talking about? What? Don't you know what's happening around here? I mean, this is the greatest and the worst news in Jerusalem. It's like going to a funeral, asking someone, are you okay? No. And that's what it was for these guys. It was a funeral march. They're walking out. They were sad. The Bible says in verse 17 that they were sad. And these men had hoped Jesus was the promised king. Look at verse 21. They said, and we had hoped that he was the one, the Messiah, to redeem Israel. They were thinking that he would redeem Israel as he ushered in an earthly kingdom that would crush Rome and bring peace and prosperity to their land. See, they were hoping for a kingdom of this world and that he would be their king. And I think these two disciples believed and probably represent what most people believe about life. And that is these guys were wanting peace and prosperity in their earthly life. These men were probably young. They had their lives in front of them. They had a hope that there would be a, a better Israel. There, maybe they would have a, a wife someday and some children. And they could have a home and they could settle down. And there would be peace and Rome would get out of their lives. And they could be the nation of Israel like it was in the days of David and Solomon. And they were hoping just for a prosperous life. I mean, isn't that the hope that everybody wants in this world? Isn't that the hope that people long for? People in this world, uh, in our, especially our society, are consumed with politics. And so they want their political system in place or their political leader in place. So hopefully things will change and it can make life better. So, so they, some people hope for socialism, right? Hopefully things will be fair. Or some people hope for capitalism. Hopefully things will be prosperous. And, and, and we could debate that as outside of this. But the, my point is that people hope for things or hope for people so life on earth will be better. People are obsessed with their stock portfolios or getting this thing and that. And if I can have this or if it's set up like this, maybe someday I can be happy. But the reality is people who pursue those things and seek happiness in those things, they find themselves empty. In fact, you find yourself empty, don't you? You can consume the news and politics and materialism and all those things. And at the end of the day, you'll sit there and you'll be empty in your soul. And these men, that's what they wanted. They want peace and prosperity. And they thought they could find it in Jesus, but it was in a wrong idea of who Jesus was. These two disciples thought Jesus would bring in this earthly kingdom that could Frankly, think about it. Jesus was the perfect king. He is the perfect king, but he was the perfect king for earth. He could actually create food out of nothing. Right? By the Sea of Galilee, there's 5,000 men, probably up to, if you include children and women, maybe up to fifteen to 20,000 people. He created food for everyone. So there goes hunger. Anyone that came to him, he healed them. I mean, there's universal health care right there, right? Like, he healed no hospitals anymore. And Jesus was an amazing ruler. He was a perfect ruler. And they thought, this is it. In fact, one week previous to that, these men would have paraded Jesus into town, into Jerusalem. 
they would have probably taken off their own coats and thrown them down and said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm trying to help you set this up. Think about the hope these guys had. It's like, here's the king. Here's the coronation. He's going to be our king. This is great. And then their hopes for a better life in Israel are dashed when the religious leaders in the middle of the night trump up charges against Jesus and ensure a quick execution at the hand of the Romans. Listen, these men wanted their king to redeem their nation so they could have a better earthly life. But Jesus actually came to redeem their souls to purchase for them eternal life. And so if you look down at verse 25, Jesus identifies these disciples and their problem. He identifies their problem. Verse 25, and he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, you guys are fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, that's the Old Testament, have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? What did Jesus identify was the problem of these disciples? They were fools, but why? Because they were slow to believe. It was their belief. They had a problem with what they believed. They were slow to believe the truth found in the word of God. You might say this way. Jesus was saying, listen, what you guys believe is wrong. What you believe about me, what you believe about eternity, what you believe about God. There might be some things that are true, but your conclusions are wrong. That's kind of unpopular to say in our society, isn't it? Like we live in a postmodern society where whatever you want to believe is true can be true for you. So you can self-identify as a chair if you want to, as long as it's true for you. But that's not a really good idea if you're going to stake your eternal life on something, is it? And so what Jesus does here is he presents to them the truth. You know why Jesus could do that? Because he had told his disciples a couple days earlier, I am the way, I am the truth in the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. That was pretty exclusive, isn't it? Jesus holds the corner on truth because he's God. Let me ask you this question. What are your beliefs about Jesus? If I were to ask you, what do you believe about Jesus? Who do you believe he is? Let me ask you this question as I follow up, as you think about that. Have you ever considered that you might be wrong? Might be wrong about your religious beliefs. You might be wrong about Jesus. So how do you determine what is true? Well, you go to the truth. You see, faith is based or should be based upon fact. In fact, this morning, you might have come to our service today because someone handed you a card like this. And on this card, it has some facts. Lighthouse Bible Church. It has our address on there. It has our time on there. And so if you got this and you looked at this, you, you might have thought, oh, I want to come to Lighthouse at 1030 at this location. And so you're here. Your, your faith was based upon the facts of this right here. Now, you could have had a friend that said, hey, come to Lighthouse. It starts at 11 o'clock. Well, those would be the wrong facts. And you might have showed up late, and that's why you're not even in here. You might be in the lobby, right? In other words, your faith should be built upon facts that are actually true, ideas that are actually true. And if they're not, you're going to be, you're going to be disappointed And how much more so is faith for eternity. The question is, is your faith based upon 
truth. These guys had a wrong idea of who Jesus was. Their conclusions were wrong. In fact, there's a lot of people that had those different, had different belief systems that were around Jesus and came to wrong conclusions. One of those was Judas. You know, Judas had faith. He had faith and the idea that his money would make him happy. So I betrayed Jesus, get 30 pieces of silver, a lot of money. And what did he conclude in the end? That didn't make him happy, actually. And he went and he killed himself. Pilate, he had faith. He had faith in the idea that appeasing the religious leaders would make life easier for him. And he had faith in the wrong propositions. Consider the Jewish leaders. Here are these Jewish leaders putting Jesus to death. They had faith in themselves and their own traditions, so much so that they rejected God himself. And there were the disciples. They had faith in Jesus, but they came to, they had some wrong ideas about Jesus, and they came to a wrong conclusion about Jesus. So the question is, what is your faith based upon? How can you know the truth? So what does Jesus do here? It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, hey, guys, Jesus has risen again. And by the way, I am he. You realize that Jesus here doesn't identify himself until after he teaches the scriptures. I think in our society, sometimes we can think that experience trumps everything else. I think what Jesus was trying to do here is teach these guys that he wanted to give them truth that was more certain than experience. Listen to that. He wanted to give them truth found in the word of God that was more certain than experience. You might have heard the story before of the elephant and the blind men that came to feel the elephant. Right. And so, you know, this is like an old proverb think from India. And so the idea is that men would come around there blind and one guy would feel the tail and he'd be like, oh, it's the elephant. I've never, you know, okay, so I should say this, blind men who have never seen, because they're blind, and never felt an elephant before. And they go, oh, an elephant's a lot like a rope because his tail feels like a rope. Another guy comes around the front and he's like, oh, I don't know the, the elephant. And he feels the trunk. And he's like, it's kind of like a snake. I think it's kind of like a snake. Another guy comes around and feels the side. He goes, no, I think the elephant's like a wall. So here you have these guys with different experiences coming to a conclusion about what they think an elephant is. And, and some people use that to say, well, that's what people do. And, you know, they, they feel out this and they think, this is what God is like. Oh, God's like this. And so he's like Buddhism or he's like Hinduism or he's like Christianity. But actually, the interesting thing is there's only one person who knows what an elephant's really like. And who's that? The one who can see the elephant. Right? And who is the one standing there that can see the elephant in the story? It's God, right? I mean, the person that can see the whole thing. And the idea is that you might depend upon your experiences and say, I think God's like this. I think truth is like this. True experience isn't always the best determination for truth. You actually must go to the one who can see it all. The one who knows it all. And that is God himself. That's why in Romans 10, 17, the Bible says... Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Build your faith upon the truth of God's word. And so what does Jesus teach them from God's word here? Well, he taught them that the entire Bible from Genesis all the way at that time through Malachi. And now we have it through Revelation. The entire Bible reveals the the glory and the glory of the Savior. The glory, I mean, the suffering and death of Jesus The glory, I mean, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. In fact, look down in verse number 27. This is what Jesus taught them. And beginning with Moses, that's Genesis, and all the prophets, that's through Malachi, that's the entire Old Testament. He interpreted to them 
all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Verse 26 says that he said that it was, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So what he's saying, the scriptures are about verse 26 there, that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. There's three things that Jesus identified from the Holy Scriptures. He said, first of all, the, the Christ would suffer gory or, or he would suffer, he would, I mean, he'd suffer um, on the cross. That's the gory part. And he'd suffer glory. That's him rising again and ascension. And then also it was necessary, which means it was needed for the salvation of souls. Do you realize the whole Old Testament points to Jesus Christ? I've met people before and talked to them. And they said, oh, that's, that's, that's not for us today. The Old Testament, you know, just full of a bunch of stories. But actually, Jesus walked through the Old Testament with these men and, and, and told them the whole Old Testament points to me. Although he didn't say me, he says it points to the Messiah. How long do you think that conversation was? What well, was calculating it? They exited Jerusalem and it's seven miles until Emmaus. If it's 20 minutes per mile, that's about two and a half hours. If you add like some breaks there, it could be like three, maybe four hours. So think about walking with Jesus and hearing him walk through the Old Testament. Have you ever considered that the the overwhelming documentation that predicts the Messiah would come? Do you realize there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that predict that the Messiah would come and Jesus fulfilled those? 300. That's amazing. In fact, there's a man named Peter Stoner who writes in Science Speaks. He said, the astounding mathematical impossibility of someone fulfilling these prophecies is mind-blowing. He says, consider that if one person fulfilled just eight of those prophecies. So one person just fulfilled eight of those prophecies. To take out the 300, let's narrow it down. He says, the likelihood, the probability of that happening would be 1 in, in 10 to the 17th power. It's like quadrillion, 1 in 1 quadrillion, however big that is. He kind of gives an illustration. He says, it's kind of like this. If you think, think about a silver dollar. Let's, take, let's, let's say, for instance, we took um, that many silver dollars, the, a quadrillion silver dollars, and we laid them across the state of Texas. Do you realize it would actually stack up about two feet? So that's a lot. And let's say you're going to take one of those silver dollars and you're going to put an X on it and you're going to throw it in the state of Texas somewhere. And then we're going to blindfold you. You had to walk around the state of Texas. You get one chance to pick up that silver dollar. And that's the likelihood that Jesus Christ could fulfill those prophecies. In other words, it's not very likely unless he's the one that's sovereign over history. So Jesus proved to them that his resurrection was true. Now, we actually don't see what he said. It's interesting. He said he did this, went through the Old Testament. Why do you think that is? I think it probably, because it'd probably be a couple more books of the Bible if we did that. But actually, I think probably the Bible does tell us the the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, because that's what the apostles did the next couple years. They wrote down what Jesus taught. It's called the New Testament. So in fact, you can even see that in especially in the book of Matthew, where Matthew goes through over and over saying, thus it is written, thus it is written. So what were some of the things that Jesus would have talked about? Well, he talked for what? Three, four hours? You think we should do that this morning? 
No. <laughs> and all God's people said, amen. <laughs> but I thought, let's go through a couple passages. This would be kind of neat. I imagine Jesus probably went back with these men to the Genesis and said, guys, don't you realize the Messiah was predicted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? There was the first Adam God created, and he was sinless. There was, he was without sin, but he rejected God and, was, and faced the judgment of death. And God promised there to be another one, a second Adam who would come, and he would be sinless because he's God himself, and he would face the judgment of death for mankind. In fact, look at Genesis on the screen up here. Look at Genesis 3.15. He promised, God promises Satan, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Isn't it interesting he says woman? And between her, your offspring and her offspring. Well, who's the offspring he's, he's talking about? He's talking about the Messiah. And who's the woman he's talking about? He's talking about Mary. He shall bruise your head. And you, Satan, will bruise his heel. So here you have the picture of Satan's head being crushed. So if you, if you crush the head of a serpent, what do you do? You kill it. And here you have the picture of someone having their heel crushed. What does that look like? That's suffering, right? And so here is a, is a wonderful picture of the Messiah crushing the person or the, the being, I should say, that brought in sin and death into this world. So he crushes sin and death and Satan. But also in the meantime, he suffers. His heel is crushed. I imagine Jesus went to Abraham and reminds him, don't you remember Abraham, how he went to the mountain, Mount Moriah, and he, he went to sacrifice his son, Isaac, but then there was a, a ram and he had the ram come and it was a substitute. Don't you realize that was the same mountain that Jesus was crucified on? Don't you remember a thousand years ago that Solomon built a temple on that same mountain? Do you realize for a thousand years, almost a thousand years, we've been sacrificing on that mountain lambs, in the Passover, we've been celebrating that every year that a spotless Passover lamb would die for the sins of the nation. And do you realize that Jesus was that Passover lamb? Can you imagine Jesus having this conversation with these, with these men and, and bringing them through the Old Testament? Or wasn't David promised in 2 Samuel 7, wasn't he promised that there would be an eternal kingdom? I mean, how is it possible, guys, to have an eternal kingdom with a human? It's only possible... If that eternal king is God, if he's eternal, or I'm sure he went to Psalm chapter 16, where he said, you know, David, he believed in the resurrection. Do you know that David believed in the resurrection? David, he said in chapter 16, verse nine, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh, my body will rest in hope. He's talking about life after death. Like I believe that I'm going to have life after death. This is David when he's singing this psalm here, and in verse 10 he says, For you, God, here's his hope for life after death. You, God, will not leave my soul in Sheol, or death, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. What is that talking about? Well, Peter makes it clear in Acts 2. The Holy One is the Messiah. And David believed that he would have life after death with God because there would be one that would come who would not see corruption or who would not stay dead. In fact, go over on the screen to Isaiah. This is our last passage we'll go through. This is the most amazing, I think, one of the most, I probably shouldn't say the most, but one of the most amazing passages in the Old Testament that point to Jesus Christ. I, last year, went to Israel. I've told you that a couple of times. And I was, I remember being in that scriptorium there. 
And I can remember, actually, guys, go, go on the screen up there to the scriptorium. I can remember being in the scriptorium there. And I was standing next to this person who didn't believe the Bible was true. And they've been with us on the trip. And so I said, let me, let me read a passage for you that's actually found in the scriptorium. The secular archaeologists say that in the scriptorium there, the Old Testament they found over in Israel predates Jesus. The copies of them predate Jesus. So I said, listen to this and tell me who this is talking about. And Isaiah 53 is a wonderful prophecy about the Messiah. On the screen, look at Isaiah 53, 3. It says, he, remember this was written 700 years before Jesus came to this earth. He was despised and rejected by men. And I can imagine Jesus on this road reading or quoting probably from memory this, song, this prophecy. He was acquainted with grief as one whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I can imagine he said, guys, on the cross that Christ suffered for our griefs, for our sins. He carried our sorrows and we esteemed him stricken of God, smitten by God and afflicted. The father on that cross Punish Jesus for the sins of mankind. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And friends, you realize when he was on that cross, Christ died for your sins. And he experienced the judgment of sin, which is death. But it wasn't because of his own sin. The Bible says, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed, spiritually forgiven and healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And I'm sure he turned to these guys and said, you know, as you were around him, you realized that how many people were going their own way and reject God. And even you, own, even you guys as well. But the Lord on that cross laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he didn't open up his mouth. You guys saw what happened to him? And he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And like a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Can you please tell me who this is talking about? This is not talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Right? The Jewish leaders, they didn't protest. They actually caused it to happen. For he was cut off from the land of the living. In other words, he died. He was put in a tomb. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of his own, no, of my people, he was stricken. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked. So he died like sinners who deserve death, but with the rich at his death. Now, what's that talking about? That's a prophecy that he would be put into a tomb of a rich man. Who was that? Joseph of Arimathea. And imagine he told these guys, hey, guys, don't you remember who buried him? It was Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. Because he had done no violence. It wasn't because something he did, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Guys, you know he was sinless. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. He was, he was literally an offering God made for sin. And he shall see, listen to this. He shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. Now, can you imagine Jesus coming to this verse in Isaiah 53 with these men and saying, this is Jesus he's talking about. His offspring. Who's the offspring of Jesus? 
Well, offspring is a reproduction of yourself. I have offspring. Some of them are in here today. I got some blonde ones that take after me. Got some brown ones, brown-headed ones, that take after Dana, right? Offsprings are a reproduction of yourself. So what, who are Jesus' offsprings? Those are those who are born of the Spirit of God. Those are those who are born again. So here's the promise that Jesus will offer new life to humanity. And how is he able to do it? God his Father will prolong his days. Now, how do you prolong the days of a man who's been tortured like this in, in Isaiah 53? And he's been cut off and he's dead. The only way you can prolong his days is if he's resurrected. He's resurrected. So Isaiah prophesies that God the Father would prolong the days of the Messiah through resurrection. And we're wrapping up here, so don't worry. We're not going to go much longer. Go back to Luke chapter 24. Look in verse 28, the conclusion. How would you feel if Jesus shared all that with you? Would your heart burn within you? Maybe your heart is burning within you right now. That's what happened with them. Verse 28, and they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he, it's Jesus, acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread, just like he did many other times. He took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. They recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while we talked? While he talked to us on the road? While he opened up to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road. And how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. In fact, you know what's interesting? Then Jesus comes and he appears to these disciples. You know what's interesting also? He does the exact same thing, almost the exact same thing, I should say, that he did with those two disciples. And that is he proves his resurrection as he teaches the Old Testament. Look down in verse 45. I'm sorry, verse 44. Here again, Jesus reveals the entire Bible is about his suffering and glory. Verse 44, he said to them, Jesus, as he appeared before the disciples there in the upper room, these are my words that I have spoken to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, those are the first five books of the Bible, the prophets and the Psalms, so he just tried to cover every genre in the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And Jesus was saying here, it clearly speaks about me. Look at verse 45. Then he, that is Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again. Notice there, he opened their minds. At the beginning of the message, I asked you, if you were in here today without Christ, just ask him, open your mind. You see, God must, in his grace and his mercy, help you to see the truth. But you, he's leaning into you, but you must lean into him. And ask him, God, please show me the truth. And Jesus there opened their minds to see the truth about his resurrection. And at that moment, the disciples realized what they had believed was false. And now they believed in the resurrection. But it didn't just end there. It wasn't just like, oh, well, that's a good thing that happened in history. No, they gave their entire lives 
to it. And friend, it's not just enough for you to believe in the fact of the resurrection. I might ask you, do you believe in the resurrection? And you would say, oh yeah, I think I believe in it. It's not enough. In fact, look at verse 46. Jesus said to them, thus it's written, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. In verse 47, what's the point? Like, what's the conclusion? That repentance, that's turning from your own way, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You see, friend, look up this way. It's not just enough to know the truth of the resurrection. You must give your life to Jesus Christ. And that means you turn from your own way and you turn to the truth found in Christ and God gives you the gift of forgiveness. That's what the disciples did. That's what the disciples preached. In fact, let me show you one last verse on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Why did Jesus come to die and rise again? And this scripture says that he died for all. He died for all. That means you, my friend. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. And the call of Christ today, friend, is to stop living your life for self. For prosperity. For the things of this earth. But live for Jesus Christ. Stop living for yourself. Live for him now and live with him forever. And that can only be done through the work of Jesus Christ. As you repent and you believe that he is the only savior. For by grace you're saved through faith and it's not yourself. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift from God. It's not of your works. lest anyone should boast. And if you're in here, my friend, without Christ, will you this moment turn to him and cry out to him in faith. Let's bow our heads in prayer. As we go to prayer, if you are in here without Christ today, there doesn't need to be a special place that you can cry out to the Lord or time you actually can do that right now in your seat. Let me encourage you to cry out to Jesus in your heart and ask him to save your soul. Brother and sister in Christ, if you as you hear my voice right now, maybe you're living for yourself. Do you realize Jesus died and rose again? Not for you to do whatever you want, but so you would surrender your life to him. Renew your commitment to Jesus Christ, even this morning, as you call upon him. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we are not We don't need to be lost in our sins. We don't need to have the despair the disciples faced right after the crucifixion. But we can have the hope that they realized after the resurrection. And I pray for each believer in this room. God, we are gathered here every week on Sunday morning because we desire to worship you and celebrate what you have done for us. We don't want to live our lives for ourselves. What a wasted life if we just live for us and for things. But God, we want to live our lives for you. And I pray for anyone in here without Christ, God, today. I pray that they will realize the emptiness within, the guilt upon their soul can only be filled and can be, be take, be, uh, they can only find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. 
I pray that they will repent and turn to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.